Hello, I'm John Passmore, and welcome to the Old Man Sailing Podcast. This goes along with the Old Man Sailing blog and the Old Man Sailing books. And to begin with, I have an embarrassing confession. There really is no point in writing this blog if I'm not going to be honest with you. In fact, if you look up the symptoms of ADD or AADD or whatever it is, you will find that compulsive honesty is one of them, even though it might not always be the best policy. And there is something that I have to get off my chest. I've been keeping quiet about it for three months because I feel embarrassed and ashamed. But it would be worse if it were to come out and people thought I'd been hiding it. In November, I did something really, really stupid. You may have been following my rather haphazard account of delivering samsara from North Wales by the south coast to the River Deben in Suffolk. Uh, that's where I live, and although I don't plan to keep her there, or come to that anywhere in particular, the family did want to see the boat, and I needed a destination. You do need a destination. All had gone very well, bar the incident in Brighton when a motor cruiser hit me and cracked the brand new teak rail, carrying away a stanchion in the process. For 24 hours nobody knew who'd done it. I had been ashore at the time, and eventually the berthing manager spotted the culprit on CCTV, and he was quite happy to take responsibility. He had sent his son to check for damage, and the lad reported all was well. Anyway. The last leg was from Dover to Felixstowe, a wonderful trip because if you time it right, you can carry the tide all the way for 12 hours. Better than that, on this occasion, I managed to get all the way there in one tack, only dropping the sails off the landguard buoy because by then it was pitch dark and the entrance was buzzing with big ships pirouetting and pilot boats zipping between them at 24 knots. The plan was to drop anchor somewhere off the Orwell for the night and then go uh, round to catch the tide into the Deben the next day. Once past the glare of Felixstowe docks, the night was as black as can be, no moon and just the winking red and green lights marking the fairway. I brought my new torch up on deck, high-tech and expensive with heaven knows how many lumens. I shone it out onto the water. The beam picked up the boys as we passed. Meanwhile, the plotter, dimmed as far as it would go, showed us progressing safely up the starboard side of the channel. And this is where things went wrong. The phone rang. I remember the first time the phone rang on a boat. We were going up the swinge off Alderney in the early 90s. It was the weirdest sensation. But now people think nothing of the phone ringing in all, all sorts of places, and of course in cars. Now, in a car you mustn't touch the phone, but you can press a button on the steering wheel and have the call played through the speakers. Well, Samsara isn't geared up for that, but I did take it out of my pocket and start talking. After all, it wasn't as if I was doing 70 miles an hour on a motorway. From time to time, as I chatted, I checked the plotter, shone the torch ahead, kept an eye on the boys, and it was during one of these checks that I was concerned to find I had wandered out of the channel to starboard. In fact, 
I was inshore of the line of moored boats. Hold on, I said to my friend. I'm out of the channel here. Let me get back. I slipped the phone into my pocket, shone the torch ahead, adjusted the course, shone the torch again, no more moored boats, and resumed the call. Pretty straightforward, you might think. Nothing to worry about. I glanced at the plotter. Bang! In the glow of the steaming light, I could see a mast. I had hit a moored yacht almost head-on. My bow was higher than theirs, and my anchor had smashed her pulpit, and as I continued down her port side, carried away the stanchions. I won't go into what my friend heard over the phone in the next few moments, but about ten minutes later, when I went to call him back to explain, I discovered he had been holding on the whole time. Anyway, I picked up a mooring nearby so I could inspect the damage in the morning. It was not as bad as it might have been, had this been a full T-bone collision. For my part, a weld on the pulpit had given way, and there was some damage to the bow roller and the anchor fixing. The anchor itself was unscathed. Over dinner and self-recriminations, I considered what to write on the note I would leave on the other boat. But in the end I called the adjacent marina and established that this was one of their moorings. They could pass on my details to the owner. Pantanius, who have insured my boats ever since the 1980s, have been wonderful, of course. The owner of the boat I hit has been very decent and thanked me for reporting the incident. Repairs are taking longer than I had hoped because of the cold weather. The engineer making a new bow roller has abandoned his workshop because it cost more to heat than he could make from working in it. Meanwhile, I have been berating myself as on how could this happen. Well, first of all, there is no doubt, for me especially, C-A-A-D-D above, the mobile phone is a distraction. It's not like talking to a crew in the cockpit. It takes your mind hundreds of miles away from where you are, and even if you're not doing 70 miles an hour on a motorway, that can have catastrophic consequences. Even so, I knew there were more boats around. Why didn't I see this one? My first conclusion was that most boats have white hulls. This one was blue. The coach roof was white, but approaching from the bow, I would not have seen that. Even so, I was shining my new high-intensity torch. And it was only last week that I made a discovery about that torch. It has three settings, very bright, quite bright, and not at all bright. I would have known this if I was the sort of person who reads instructions, but what instructions do you need to operate a torch? What I would have understood, if I had read them, is that the first time you switch it on it is very bright, and then if you turn it off and on again it is quite bright, and so on. But if you're approaching a boat with a blue hull from head on, and you switch on your torch when the sequence happens to have reached the not very bright at all, you might as well be without a torch, yeah, as it is. This is not an excuse. It might be called a contributory factor, but the fault is nobody else's but mine. 
it was a salutary lesson, and I promise you I shall learn from it. The main thing is that nobody got hurt, and the damage can be repaired. Besides, guess what I got for Christmas? A night vision monocular. The Gold Line I am looking at a picture of my old Rival 32, Largo, in a lock somewhere in the north coast of Brittany. I should imagine, anyway. And if I look very carefully, I will see there was a lovely gold line along the rubbing strake. I always thought it looked like solid gold, which it was, well, not actually solid gold, but it wasn't gold paint. It was gold adhesive tape and it had the look of a chunk of gold that had been hammered into the hull all the way down. It looked particularly good against the dark blue of the strake. Samsara, being the same design, has a rubbing strake too, but hers hasn't been painted. I did think of it, but, to be honest, it was a lot of trouble, and if I want to paint it in years to come, there's always that option. But I did want a gold line. I told Barry Lovell from TLC Boat Repair all about it. I was still enthusing about the solid gold sellotape when I realised he was shaking his head. It comes off, he said. Just doesn't stick. Nonsense, I told him. It lasted for years last time I used it. In fact, I think I only replaced it once in more than ten years. Doesn't last, he repeated. Gold paint, that's what you want. Gold paint, and then when it gets a bit dull, you just go over it again. There are many things, in fact most things, on which I would take Barry's advice, but a gold line is not one of them. With all the passion of someone who is particularly attached to gold lines, I remained adamant and went and ordered a roll of the stuff from the chandlery. For the next few weeks that gold line was admired many times, not only by people who stopped to nod approvingly as they walked their dogs across the boatyard, but also on Facebook, and on any occasion when people were too slow to run away before I found an opportunity to point it out. Then I made the terrible mistake of putting the boat in the water and going sailing. And on the very first day I looked admiringly at the creaming wake and saw a flash of gold. There, twisting and turning like a very ostentatious mackerel line, was thirty foot of gold tape trailing behind the boat. So we sailed all the way round the west country and the south coast, looking just a little shabby. However, now that the thermometer has finally reached ten degrees Celsius, that's what's required for painting, I'm pleased to say the gold line is back. Now all I have to do is touch up the white paint around it. Anti-fouling Like an old 1960s comedian coming out of retirement, I have returned to sailing to discover that the world has changed. The environment has taken over. I'm sure it's a good thing. In fact, as we shall see later, I'm going to be doing my bit when it comes to putting an end to plastic waste at sea. But I was not prepared for what has happened to anti-fouling. 
It doesn't seem that long ago that you got a bucket of water and some coarse wet and dry sandpaper, and after half an hour your hands, your clothes, your hair, not to mention the ground all around the boat, would be bright red or blue or black or whatever was the colour of the stuff you were rubbing off. Not any more. Now we know that the groundwater and the effect of chemicals on microorganisms. Quite how I was going to get into the water, of course, uh, through the tarmac on the hard standing, was never explained. However, one thing was abundantly clear. Samsara's generous coating of TBT and Micron and every type of organised uh, constituted an environmental disaster. I've since looked it up and it's quite put me off my fish supper. So now I asked Barry, who had just imparted the dire warnings, how am I supposed to get it off? The words specialist equipment and has chem suit featured in the explanation, along with news that he had everything that was needed together with a fit young man who would be happy to spend a couple of days crawling around under the boat, scraping away the vacuum cleaner attachment and sucking it all up all the toxins into a nice Haschem bag. It's a wonderful system. And do you know what's wonderful about it? Cooking breakfast to the accompaniment of scrape, 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 coming through the hull and knowing that you don't have to do it yourself. Friday the 13th. This was supposed to be a short stop. If you've been following events, you will know that Samsara and I have arrived home in Woodbridge in mid-December. I was supposed to be just for Christmas and repairs to the damaged rail from getting clobbered by a motorboat in Brighton, not to mention my own foolishness on the River Orville within reach of home. I had planned to be off again by the end of February, why do we make these plans? Has any plan actually survived a brush with reality? First of all, if the boat was going to have to come out of the water for the work, then I might as well touch up the paint. I didn't sound much. All I needed was a couple of days with a thermometer over 10 degrees. And what did I get? The longest, coldest winter in living memory. Uh, then there was the sailmaker whose excuse was, I'm afraid we took on too much work, and the elderly engineer whose apology goes into my collection of cherished quotes, look, it's going to cost more to heat my workshop than I'm going to charge for doing the work. So, one way and another, it was Friday the 13th of April when I set off. What time are you leaving? said Lottie, when we seemed to be thinking of the correct protocol, whether it was to wave a damp hanky from the quayside or whatever. Oh, about eleven o'clock, I should think, I replied, with all the assurance of one who has decided to spend the night before departure on the boat, just to make sure everything it would be ready. And what didn't I have? Possibly the most important item? And it wasn't even on the list? Music. Last time I did this sort of thing, I had a plastic suitcase full of tape cassettes. Remember them? Oh, uh, the pain of trying to decide what to leave behind. Frank Sinatra made it, Fred Astaire didn't. 
Now, of course, <laughs> you can take all the world's music on Spotify. Except my phone seemed to have forgotten a lot. One way and another, by the time I had downloaded it all again, and walked the dogs, since I was home anyway, and taken the cheque to the bank, I was late leaving. Now, here's the thing. If this was a strange port, any competent skipper would check the tides, read up on the pilotage information, have the chart ready. If it's your home port, you assume you know everything. At least I do. I've sailed a laser around here every summer Saturday for years. I left, but never returned, with the catamaran Lottie Warren. But Samsara is rather a different prospect. For instance, a laser has a centerboard. Lottie Warren drew 0.7 metres. Samsara draws 1.5, and her keel is most definitely fixed. As became clear when we reached the shallows off Kaisen Point. The river path down to Kaisen is where everyone walks their dogs. It's where I walk the dogs. This is how I know how fascinating it is to stop and inspect the yachts that misjudge the turn and spend six hours sitting comfortably at an angle of 45 degrees on the mud. By the time I floated again, it was dark and with no moon, and this is when I made the next discovery, that the night vision gadget Tamsin gave me for Christmas is not as simple as the instructions would have you believe. In the end, I groped my way down the river with a torch until I found a mooring in what appeared to be deep enough water. It wasn't, as became evident when things started falling off the chart table at four o'clock in the morning, but by then I was past caring. Now I don't care anyway. On Saturday the 14th I have sailed all the way down the river in beautiful spring sunshine, and as I write this the stove is going, and Frankie is on Spotify, and in a minute I shall get up and cook myself some dinner. There's still a long list of things to do. For the first week I shall be holed up in an Essex creek, painting the decks. But for the meantime there is an immense sense of contentment in the fact that at last the adventure has begun. Please Yourself this was written a few days ago. I don't suppose it would suit everyone, but for the first time I feel I really can say I am living the dream. This it is what is what is like to do exactly as you please. Samsara is anchored off Stone Point in the Walton backwaters, that maze of creeks and mud made famous in swallows and Amazons. In fact, it was here, more than 60 years ago, that I first went sailing and began to become rather fanciful about living on a boat. We are here because I have to paint the decks, so I need somewhere that is quiet, not too far away from a water tap, have to wash off the degreasing agents. I arrived a couple of days ago. It's perfectly sheltered, and there is just one other boat here an old wooden yacht with a bluff bow, the sort of thing you see on Dutch classics, and a bowsprit, almost half as long again. To begin with, I thought that there was no one aboard. 
although there was an ancient dinghy alongside. Admittedly, I have anchored at such a respectful distance that I was looking at her through binoculars, and then today I saw the skipper, a man of about my age, although with more hair. He came out, did something on deck, and disappeared without looking my way. And then, why should he? I was watching him through the window. Today was not a day to go out. Bright sunshine, but a strong and bitterly cold wind. For the first half hour I fretted about this. It will probably take me a whole day to clean the decks to a standard required by the paint manufacturer. But then, what's the hurry? My next appointment is for renewing my long-lapsed radio license on the 29th. I can please myself until then. And pleasing yourself is one of the most wonderful and yet one of the rarest opportunities we have in this life. In fact, looking back, how much of our lives do we spend pleasing ourselves? If you live with other people, you have a whole separate agenda to consider, and who wants to be inconsiderate? But if it's just you, and nobody knows or cares what you'll be doing today, that means you can, for once, please yourself. I do know that I didn't get up particularly early. I think it was about eight o'clock. I lingered over breakfast and pulled my one non-navigational book out of the bookcase. It's, it's all right. The rest are on Kindle, but this one has photographs. I do know that I had several phone conversations with people interested in network marketing. More about that on the, well, on the blog. A bit of work does have to intrude, after all. There was a text from Tamsin asking whether I would be joining everyone for the annual bucket and spade holiday in Southwold, but I should be on my way back from the Azores by then. However, it would all have to be paid for, hence the bit of work. Interestingly, I didn't resent this at all because it was on my terms. In fact, it was exciting to see that the plan seemed to be working although one conversation lasted for an hour and ten minutes. I'm not sure that's a good idea. But we talked about all sorts of things, and I was in no hurry to say goodbye. And so the day slipped past. Lunch was an occasion. I'm getting a real taste for large mugs of sweet tea with condensed milk. Sometime in the afternoon I became so thrilled with the way things were working out that I decided tonight will be movie night. Uh, this will be a first. I have a dozen favourite DVDs which I'll be quite happy to watch again and again and maybe again. I must have seen oh, It's a Wonderful Life 20 times already. The computer is charged up for, from carefully monitoring the sonar panel and I've got a wire to plug it into the little waterproof speaker. It's not really that cold but the charcoal heater makes the cabin so cosy that I'll have that on as well. In fact, time for dinner, I think. And now for the commercial break. Some people cherish a dream all their lives and then one day when it's too late find that ill health has overtaken them. If you've read the old man's story page on my blog, you will know that I came very close to the same fate, the falling asleep at the wheel, the constant courses of antibiotics. 
If you haven't seen the video, there's one there you can watch. Just have a look at oldmansailing.com forward slash good health. For a more professional opinion, Dr. James Lefanu, the medical correspondent of London Daily Telegraph, wrote an article entitled, All Those Pills Could you Be Making You Ill. Uh, there's a PDF version on the same site. So, I have every attention of spending most of my time on this boat for the next 50 years. Yes, that is not a typographical error, and yes, at the time of writing, which was 2017, I was 68, which means that I'm awarding myself a life expectancy of 118 years. Well, let's call it 120. Why do I feel so confident? Because I have a secret ingredient, an all-natural nutrition supplement, which I believe is so effective that I do not carry any pharmaceutical products on samsara at all. Not even an aspirin. Let me tell you the story. I started taking this supplement in May 2016 because of arthritis in my hands. Within a few months the pain eased and then disappeared, and I've had none since. Meanwhile I realized that a patch of skin on my nose, which had never completely healed, suddenly did so. Various other unexpected benefits became apparent. I started waking up before the alarm, feeling that I might as well get up. I could drive for four hours without feeling drowsy. A lacerated leg from stepping on barbed wire healed remarkably quickly without the need for antibiotics. During the previous year, I'd spent so much time on antibiotics that I ended up in hospital having them intravenously, all because I had banged my elbow. Periodic episodes of optical migraines ceased completely. Obviously, since I was buying this new supplement, I discontinued all the others I'd been taking. And for the record, this was the list I had. Glucosamine, 1500 milligrams, Centrum 50 plus vitamin and mineral supplement for the over 50s, ferroglobin iron supplement, aspirin, 75 milligrams, cod liver oil. Total cost was 42 pounds a month and I still had all the troubles I listed above. The new supplement cost me £24 a month. You can find out all about it on the blog, oldmanselling.com, as I say, forward slash good health. And now back to business. When the rum bottle falls over. Harbour rots ships and men. And I spent long enough in harbour painting the decks trying to work out why the anchor windlass has a mind of its own. All I want to do is to get going. If I could head out of the Channel Islands tomorrow, I'd be off like a shot. However, despite all the lists of things to do, I had completely forgotten that I passed my radio operator's exam in 1987, and have long since lost it, and anyway, a lot seems to have changed since then. Now I am due at the Shearwater Sailing School in Wolverstone on Sunday to take it again. And I have homework to do first. In other words, I couldn't go far, I just had to go somewhere. This is why, for no particular reason other than the thrill of it, I hoisted the anchor and a good deal of mud out of the river store and set course for Mersey Island. Some 30 miles around the coast it was. 
It really was the most wonderful feeling. For one thing, Zamsara is a much faster boat than I realised, certainly faster than I remember Largo used to be. Remember, it's, maybe it's a feathering propeller. Maybe modern sails make all the difference. But coming out of Felixstowe and across to the Nays, we were clocking more than seven knots and overhauling much bigger boats, all of which seemed to have in-mast furling. There was a fresh wind blowing out of the southwest, a blue sky with fluffy white clouds, and I discovered that one of the most useful features of AIS is that it makes a much more precise business of choosing to declare a race against another boat which just happens to be going the same way. Now you don't need those discussions with the crew, in my case imaginary crew, about whether you really are overhauling her or, come to that, weathering on her. Now all you need to do is to look at the screen and you get the other vessel's course and speed. It does spoil a good argument, though. Of course, as the wind picked up and the other boat went and wounded a bit more of his in-mast furling, probably on an electric winch, I had to clamber up and down and get up to the mast and take on a reef, and I'm still working out the best way to do it. I was just beginning to feel that my new system wasn't quite as foolproof as I imagined when the end of the world approached from the starboard bow. If you've seen a line squall coming at you across open water, you will know what I mean. I might have been under a blue sky, but to windward, all was shades of grey, with a grey curtain extending down from the clouds to the sea. Abandoning all thought of the first reef, I raced through my new system of tie in the second, and I was just about to put four rolls in the already working-sized jib when it hit. Samsara went with it, putting more than half her side deck under water. She came up, of course, and accelerated, but was still overpressed. This was solid wind, and not a good thing with the wallet sandbank close under our lee. If I tack now, I could get away into clear water, and also use the tack to put those four rolls into the jib. All was going according to plan, and I was sweating in the main, when there was an odd noise. It was rather like the creaking of a rope under extreme load, but not quite. I looked up to the block at the end of the boom. That was where the strain would be. And then, thinking at first that there was an unpleasant dirty mark on the sail, I realised that what I was seeing was grey cloud through the sail. There was a horizontal split, maybe ten centimetres long, just above the second reef pennant. The first thought, of course, was that whether the whole thing was going to go. The instant solution was to get it down. All clear, with nothing under the lee, I wrestled the whole sail onto the boom and tied it down, all the while gritting my teeth over the sail ties in my mouth and waiting for the sound of more tearing sailcloth. Of course, the wind died after that, as the squall went on its way to cause more havoc further up the coast. For the sake of some progress, I tied in the third reef, and we sailed sedately into the river Cone with a tiny scrap of mainsail and a full jib. Anchored at the back of Mersey Island, I have just phoned a sailmaker in Wolverstone who can repair it on Monday, but I've still got to get there 
and the question is whether to risk a stick-on patch just to give me full sail. If I have a decent wind, and a following wind at that, I won't need it. I have a cruising chute or twin headsails. We'll see. Meanwhile, I was interested to see how things coped below. Since Samsara's hugely experienced previous owners created a wonderful sense of space in the cabin by dispensing with the upper level of lockers and installing open racks instead so that the saloon now extends the full width of the hull, there is a worry that in violent weather various items will start flying about. In fact, on the list of things to do before setting out into the Atlantic is a reminder to make nets to keep everything in place should we suffer a lockdown. Well, two apples took flight, and I think it might be a good idea to eat them sooner rather than later. Oh yes, and the rum bottle fell over. Probably in disgust. Disaster Management, The Cooker The end came as I left the shipping lanes. Ridiculous, really. Just as I should have been able to relax with a cup of coffee, suddenly the boat went up in flames. Honestly, it was as sudden as that. One moment I was warming the pot, the next the boat was on fire. Bright blue and yellow flames spread across the cooker, licked at the curtains and fanned out across the cabin. I let out a small shriek, leapt backwards, rammed my coccyx into the bulkhead and my head into the deckhead, which, of course, was where the flames were. I could hear my hair crackling. It's a good thing that panic doesn't last for long. Eventually the idea of a fire extinguisher emerged through the haze. I pulled off ring. I held upright. I aimed at base of fire. In fact, I was about to strike knob when I realised how much of a mess this was going to make. It would take me a fortnight to get rid of the stuff, especially in the galley, which in common with all galleys consisted mostly of inaccessible corners. If I'd been thinking clearly, it would have occurred to me that what we had here was an overreaction to panic. Well, panic in the first place, anyway. I was being unnaturally blasé in the face of disaster, any minute now I'd get out the mouth organ and start playing Abide With Me. But it did give me a second's pause before striking Knob hard. I looked at the flames, which by now had spread out to embrace the lockers and at any moment were going to turn the fairy liquid bottle into a piece of meaningful contemporary sculpture. I looked, I took a breath, I blew. Now, I know that blowing at the flames is not a recognised course of action included in most ships' fire precautions. They may suggest operate extinguisher or sound alarm or assemble on boat deck, do not run. But nowhere do they say, take deep breath, direct mouth at base of fire, blow hard. They should. It worked. With a single puff, the fire was out. I stood and marvelled. The damage to the boat was negligible, just a slight scorching of the curtains. It was, looking back on it, a close call. The fact is, I have a problem with cookers. With some people it's tides, 
They spend long summer afternoons sitting at 50 degrees by the side of the river, feeling foolish. Others have a horror of harbours, and after bashing into a gale all night without mishap, they arrive in the calm of the morning, get themselves the wrong side of somebody's bowsprit, and end up having to be rescued by the harbour master. With me, it's cookers. I have trouble with sandbanks and harbour masters as well, of course, but not on a regular basis. The cooker syndrome probably has something to do with reading somewhere that the authorities in Sweden will not allow boat builders to fit pressurised gas on yachts. They view the whole idea with the same distaste as the prospect of one half of the population massacring the other half by driving their Volvos on high-octane aquavit. Obviously, there is hardly much point in saving them from themselves if all they're going to do is to go down to their boats and blow themselves up. So, when I bought little Amicus, the first thing I did was to rip out the gas stove and replace it with an alcohol version made in Sweden and approved by all sorts of Swedish authorities. However, this enthusiasm for safety precautions may have been invalidated somewhat by buying the cooker not just second-hand, but from my mate Jimmy, who was just starting out on a long career of selling me dodgy cookers. Marvellous thing, said Jimmy. Just run it on meths, although I'm told that in Antigua 90 proof rum is cheaper. If ever Jimmy falls on hard times, he could do worse than setting up a stall on the Mile End Road. I did run it on meths. The smell was indescribable. Grudgingly, Jimmy admitted that sometimes it did niff a bit. Uh, but I would get used to it. Anyway, what was the slight but homely odour of methylated spirit when compared to the prospect of blowing up? Besides, he couldn't take it back now. He'd bought a new one. I persevered. I inquired at the chandlery. Meths, said the salesman. You can't run it on meths. You're supposed to use ethyl alcohol. That's what the Swedes use. I suppose you can get it in Sweden. Or you could try the chemist. I did. The chemist offered me a small medicine bottle of ethanol for external use only. Volume for volume, it was more expensive than 90-proof rum bought in London. The chemist explained that it was against the law to sell it in any other quantity in case people preferred not to use it externally but as a replacement for rum. The French, he added helpfully, had no such qualms. You could buy it anywhere in France. And so in Cherbourg, in a hardware store, I loaded up with ten one-litre bottles of Alcool La Brûle, which cost hardly more than paraffin. It looked like white rum and burned with a slight but not unpleasant sweet perfume. Also, it burned very readily, so that, overfilling the cooker at the end of the annual refueling trip to Cherbourg, I had it bursting into flames as soon as I put the kettle on. Of course, as the Swedish inspectorate of galley installations would say, it is a far, far better thing to burn the ship down than to blow it up. I got the chance to try the alternative the following year when I sold Amicus and bought Largo and inherited another gas cooker. This one lasted a couple of years before the rust triumphed over the congealed bacon fat to get at the machine's vitals. Never mind, Jimmy was swapping boats too and just happened to have a magnificent old tailor's cooker to spare.
I drove at once down to the east coast, which just shows you how the mind can play tricks on the memory. The cooker certainly was magnificent, a veritable brass artefact with vitreous enamel hob, the colour of molten toffee. It was not admittedly plumbed in, so he was not able to demonstrate it, but it did have the tailor name on a plate on the oven door, and as everyone knows, tailor's cookers go on forever. I bought it. For the next two years, when people asked me if I had a hobby, I did not tell them that I had a boat. I told them I had a paraffin cooker. This was because I never seemed to sail the boat. But I did spend long, absorbing weekends taking the cooker to pieces. The first problem was that the pressure tank did not hold pressure. You could boil a kettle by pumping all the while, but it is possible that the energy required, if applied to a generator, would have run an electric kettle and a microwave on the side. I had the pressure tank welded back together again. Then the burners would produce only a yellow flame which covered the bottom of the pots with soot, except when the yellow flame shot all the way up to the deckhead and covered that with soot instead. I pricked the jets and got a squirt of pressurised paraffin straight in my eye. I dismantled the jets, cleaned every part and reassembled them. This time the paraffin leaked out of the bottom in a puddle. I dismantled everything again and took the lot to the hardware shop. The man behind the counter looked at the pieces as if they could be put together to make a Roman vase and nodded wisely. He announced, haven't seen one of these for a long time. That's the old model you got there. Don't do spares for that anymore. One of life's essential little truths began to dawn on me. What was the point of having a cooker you couldn't get spares for? I hauled out the credit card and bought all the spares necessary to upgrade the ancient tailors to the modern specification that you could get spares for. Another trip to the man who welded the pressure tank, another week's wait, and I had a cooker that looked exactly the same as before, but was, in fact, the very latest thing in paraffin technology. And it worked. I filled the little cups with meths, I lit it, I waited until it burned out, I opened the valve, I lit the vapour, and, as if by a magical miracle, I was rewarded with a clear green flame. Ah, what a moment that was. I sat and looked at it, rather as James Watt must have sat and looked at his steam edging pumping away. And I said with deep satisfaction, It works. It actually works. To celebrate, I made a cup of tea, without having to wipe half a pound of soot off the deckhead afterwards. Then I went off to the hardware shop to spread the good news and to buy all the spares that would keep it working well into the next century. While I was at it, I took the opportunity to buy a bottle of meths as well. At least, I started to. I got halfway through the transaction before the man standing beside me said quietly, I wouldn't buy that if I were you. Not for a tailor's cooker. No? Oh, definitely not. I had a tailor's cooker, and I used meths on it, just like you, and it burned with a green flame. Well, I didn't think anything of it until I had a friend aboard who was an analytical chemist, and he told me that the green flame came from the brazing burning away.
He let the significance of that sink in for a bit and then added, just in case I couldn't work it out for myself, once the brazing burns through, you'll get blazing paraffin spraying all over the cabin. Not very nice, that. I wouldn't buy meths if I were you. I did not buy meths. I went straight to the phone box on the corner and called Blake's in Portsmouth. The man on the other end seemed to have had calls like this before. He began by saying, Ah, in a way that suggests that somewhere a nail has been hit on the head. We've had a few calls about this. It seems that some methylated spirit manufacturers are using a different process. What you want is the kind that does not say mineralized on the bottle. That's if you can find it. Some people have found it rather hard to come by. Oh, that was great. So what was I supposed to do when I was unable to find this unmineralized mess? Ah, ah, now there I can help you. What you need is one of those butane blowtorches. You just play it around the element for a minute or two and it should light straight away. The man at Blake's really was trying to be helpful. He had no way of knowing that the whole extravagant shambles had been dedicated to getting bottled gas off the boat. He really was a very nice man. Which is why Largo now has a gas cooker. I simply gave up. If we blow up, then I shall arrive at the pearly gates saying that I tried. The Swedish inspectorate of galley installations could have no complaints about my good intentions. Which is why, for the first time in my life, I bought a brand new cooker. Jimmy tried to sell me his latest, but the time it came attached to a 45-foot steel catch in the med. With memories of the rusting monster I had started out with, I went for the top of the range, grand and shining affair called the Atlantic. It seemed to conjure up the right image. However, while it certainly looked the part, I soon discovered that all that shines is not necessarily stainless steel. For instance, someone had decided to make the cooker out of the full gamut of alloys, none of which seemed to get on with any of the others. By the end of the first season, the pan clamps were welded to their screw fittings. I had had to replace the rusted rivets with monol ones, and the bolt holding the grill pan together turned out to be made of mild steel. I mentioned this to the salesman at the Chandler's stand on the boat show. Guess what he said? Well, we keep asking them to upgrade their specifications, but they seem satisfied with them as they are. I've still got the cooker, of course. This year the jets separated into two halves, and the gas must have been escaping down into the grill, because when I went to light it there was a woof, and a bright blue flame took all the hairs off the back of my hand. I should have been alarmed. I should have panicked. Or at the very least, worried that you can't actually blow out a gas explosion. With gas, it's the explosion that tends to blow you out. Instead, I just struck another match, did everything that would light, and had a cup of tea. The plain fact is that, like the marina blunderer who must make port somehow, or the patient resident of the sandbag as he feels the keel touch once more, I had come to terms with the inevitable. And besides, short of living on self-heating cans for the rest of my sailing days, I was running out of options.
Well, that's it for now. Look forward to joining you again next time.